Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Academic Dean is sponsored by Myers-McRae Executive Search and Consulting. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gercheck. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Beth Brunk to our show. Dr. Brunk is the Dean of Extended University at the University of Texas in El Paso, Texas. Hi, Beth. So glad to have you on our podcast today. Hi, David. Thanks for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. So can you talk a little bit about your college and why students select your institution? Absolutely. So the University of Texas at El Paso, or UTEP, is an urban public institution located on the U.S.-Mexico border, as well as the Texas-New Mexico border. Texas is a big state, as you know, so we are far west Texas, 500 to 600 miles or so from Austin, Dallas, San Antonio. This fall, we have enrolled about 24,500 students. We're an open access institution, and many of our undergraduate students come from local high schools in the El Paso region, as well as transfer in from El Paso Community College. Last year, we enrolled our largest first time in college freshman class, and it looks like we may have surpassed that again this year, although classes just started yesterday, so we're waiting for our census numbers to be coming in a week or so. As an I-1 institution since 2019, we offer 24 doctoral programs and have research expenditures over 130 million. As what we call a super HSI, over 84% of our students identify as Hispanic. Half of our undergraduate students are first in their family to attend college. So we're really doing a lot of different things on, on both ends of the spectrum, open access institution, minority and Hispanic serving institution, but also a high research activity institution. So why do students come to UTEP? UTEP's longtime vision under President Diana Alicio had been to provide access and excellence, or as we now say more recently with Dr. Heather Wilson, access to an excellent education. I've always held on to Dr. Nalicia's frequent reminder that talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not. Therefore, much of my work involves cultivating pathways into the university, and a significant component of that is developing and sustaining an, a robust online portfolio of in-demand online programs. We have a growing portfolio of those programs to meet the needs of students who are not able to get to campus, but seek a high-quality education at the undergraduate and graduate levels. Plus, I get to work on one of the most beautiful campuses in the country, so listeners might want to take a quick look at UTEP's architecture, which is modeled after the temples in the Kingdom of Bhutan, and we're very proud to have such a beautiful campus to work and study on. Oh, neat. Well, what's new on campus? Well, I feel like most universities would say everything is new and nothing is new at all, right? Correct. <laughs> Um, but some of the new things that are most visibly happening on our campus is about a year ago, we broke ground on a new additive manufacturing and aerospace building. And um, we've added programs in those areas in the College of Engineering. And we're about to do the same to break ground on a new building for teaching and learning specifically. Um, so students have a bright and uh, technologically sophisticated space to study and learn with their faculty members. And as we'll probably talk about later through this podcast is we're working on a number of things such as career to curriculum, I'm sorry, curriculum to career initiatives. Uh, we just brought the career center over from student affairs to academic affairs inside of the provost office and we're strengthening the work between them and developing a campus-wide curriculum to career ecosystem. Um, we already have a lot of these components in place, but we didn't realize quite how they were fitting together. And now we're creating a more uh, structured way to think about how we do that work with our students. We're also improving our academic undergraduate advising, completing a curricular complexity analysis project, 
working on various degree programs, both online and on campus, that provide flexibility for students at the undergraduate and graduate levels. And that's one thing I'm excited about doing right now is that we've we've done some good work at thinking about how to create flexibility for undergraduate students. And we're now translating that in some places to graduate students as well, understanding that not all graduate students have a quick and easy transition straight from undergrad to graduate school. We have a new returning student forgiveness policy that I'm especially proud of because this was something I started working on in 2019 before the pandemic started. Um, and it's just now officially in the books or in the catalog for this fall semester. Um, it's a policy we're calling Second Start um, that allows students who have been away after an extended absence to come back to campus and uh, give them some forgiveness for the classes that they maybe didn't do so well on but yet wow. retain the credits for the classes that they did do well on. Um, because we realized we were sort of disadvantaging our returning students over transfer students. Um, because transfer students, as you know, can come to campus and they don't bring those GPA that GPA with them. So they get kind of a fresh start at a new campus if they're transferring those hours. But if we're bringing back students who maybe didn't have a great start the first time, they don't have the ability to do that. So a lot of times they have to go elsewhere so to get their degree. And so this is a new way for us to help, again, like uh, provide another pathway into the university or back to the university for a second time. And so the team of deans and members of the provost office who I get to work with are very dedicated to student success. And we're constantly in search of, of improvements um, and ways to promote um, a, a successful student pathway into the university. You know, um, returning forgiveness is, is not not a lot of places are doing that. And it Correct. really gates students. I can't remember how many students I talked to over the years sure. that were so frustrated because it was just like, if I start, I'm already in the hole. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Right. And we had a program previously very creatively called option two, which no one knew what that meant, except that um, it did allow student forgiveness, but they lost all of their credits in order to do so. So this gives them um, the ability to say, hey, there were some things that I did well the first time. There may have been some reasons I didn't do so well the second time. Um, but let's see, you know, let's see how it goes the second time. And in our experience, um, and most of our online undergraduate students are returning students or transfer students. They're not students who are coming straight out of the high school experience. Most of the time, those students come back and they're ready to go. They're ready to do well. They're successful. They move through quickly. They, you know, uh, get high grades in their classes. And so this gives them like, again, like I said, this opportunity to, to be successful the second time around. Yeah. Well, what are you currently focusing on to enhance the educational experience for students right now? Okay. Well, I think I've talked, uh, touched upon a few of these already. I think one important thing I want to mention is what we've done with advising um, for the undergraduate student population. So we're calling it a holistic and integrated advising model, and it's based on research done at our own institution and supported by Title V grants and grants from our UT University of Texas system um, to transform and professionalize academic advising. It was a highly decentralized model um, previously with, with some centralized components, but not in a consistent way that probably made sense to anybody outside of the advising community. Um, so now under the leadership of one of our associate vice provosts, Dr. Heather Smith, the Academic Advising Center provides cohort-based advising, which each student works with a single assigned advisor on a personalized academic, financial, and engagement plan. So it's not just about what classes am I looking to need to take in the future semester or a couple of semesters, but they're also having conversations about how they're doing financially, if they need access to grants, scholarships, loans, how to do that, 
but also how they will um, perform as an engaged student throughout throughout their time at UTEP. And so we're already, this has only been in existence for a couple of years now, but we're already seeing some existence that it may be contributing to persistence rates, um, freshman to sophomore year, sophomore to junior year. Um, realizing that sometimes institution itself creates the barriers or roadblocks that prevents students from moving <laughs> forward uh, efficiently. Um, and not that we do this on purpose, right? We create systems that we think will work on paper and then we get people in them and it doesn't always work, but we don't take the time to analyze and change them. So we're doing a lot of that work now. Um, the curriculum complexity study is really kind of fascinating. It looks at things like in an undergraduate major, how many prerequisites are required and when are they offered and how many seats are available in that prerequisite class? And are there issues with students being able to not get into that class? What modalities is it offered in? And it, it kind of branches out, provides, provi provides this really interesting model of what a degree program looks like, what a major looks like. And we've already done this with one. Um, uh, kinesiology was the first group to do this, and they realized they had prerequisites in the books that weren't really prerequisites anymore. They had made sense at a certain point in time, um, and it's just the way that they were in the catalog, and they've created more flex flexible pathways for the students to move through that, that major. So I think now that we've already got one that seems to have had a successful experience of doing this, we'll see other um, majors doing so as well. And then another important thing that I think has just recently happened is we've rebranded and rejuvenated our teaching and learning center. It's now called INSPIRE, which is a great name for this kind of center. It stands for Institute for Scholarship, Pedagogy, Innovation, and Research Excellence. Um, and I, I'm not directly involved with this, but I do have a significant um, history with this group and I work with online program and course development. So I'm kind of often included in many of these conversations, but they are launching a series of workshops for new faculty specifically on engagement in the classroom, no matter what modality the class is being taught in. So I'm excited to see how their work develops. We're they're having conversations about artificial intelligence as almost every campus is and just lots of other ways to help faculty get um, more feedback, more community, more engagement with each other. And hopefully that engagement will translate into the classes. Yeah, well, well, since you mentioned AI, how is your college adapting to the changing landscape of higher ed, including the incorporation of technology? Right. So, um, we are struggling, I think, just as a lot of universities are. Uh, the first conversations I'd heard about it, I guess spring semester, was really this uh, huge reaction against it, right? Um, sending students to the, uh, the conflict management, you know, saying students are using this in my classroom and it's prohibitive. And the conversations were, well, what conversation did you have with the students to suggest that it was prohibited? And so that that was an interesting moment to try to think about how are we going to talk about AI, potentially use AI productively, make sure students understand the implications of using it and so on. And so we're working right now. It's still We're still kind of in the early stages. What we've done most formally is through the provost office, drafted some uh, language that can be used inside of a syllabus to say, here are the kinds of AI that you could consider being used in this class here are the ways that it's appropriate or permissible or let's have fun with it. And here are the ways that I would prefer you do not use it. So there's at least a clear statement in the syllabus to give students and then faculty um, guidance on how to move forward with it. Um, but there's a lot of really interesting ways that AI is being used 
across the university um, in history classes and engineering classes and math classes and writing classes, which is my background. And so I think really our our responsibility is to understand it, play with it, have fun with it, and then figure out where that line sort of is for each individual faculty member. Yeah, the syllabus is the contract with the student. I think that's right. great. Put it right in there and that kind of solves because a lot of universities aren't doing that right now. They're just they're they're just wanting to talk about it, but there's nothing in writing. So Right. And that's that's the the direction we went. Um, at first, we thought we would have some sort of statement. We were calling it a policy. We decided policy is not where we wanted to go. And then we called it a guideline or a framework. Kind of sort of still in that space. But what we ultimately said is let's let's put the, the responsibility where it should be with the faculty member so that each each faculty member feels like they have the the ability and the understanding and the comfort of, of how they want to use AI in their classes. Well, with the rising cost of education, what are you doing to make education more accessible and affordable? So I think based on probably some of the things that I already mentioned about UTEP, um, it's probably not surprising that we've long had an affordable tuition rate at this institution. Um, And as part of the University of Texas system, UTEP students are benefiting from a couple of recent initiatives on on top of what we've already tried to do as a low cost um, uh, institution. In the spring of 2022, UT System announced a program called Promise Plus, which is a $300 million endowment that covers the tuition of many students across the system. And then just recently, the Board of Regents voted to freeze tuition and mandatory fees across the system for the next two years and and also help the institutions to kind of cover the gaps where tuition might have filled some of the, the needs for the institution. And then when we launched the online programs, I want to make sure to note that we we made sure to charge the same or very close to the same tuition and fees rates as the students were on campus because we didn't want to have um, the sense that we were disadvantaging the online students by charging them more or disadvantaging the on-campus students by um, charging them more as well. So we eliminated some fees for students. I'm, so, I'm sorry. Eliminate some fees for services on campus, like the union fee, the rec fee, the student um, health center fee, to kind of mitigate the cost of the distance learning fee that um, online students have included on their tuition and fee bill. Um, and generally speaking, the UTEP student culture is a loan adverse one. So we do as much as we can to support those students through um, scholarships and grants. In fact, 68% of our undergraduate students received grants or scholarships, not loans, in the last five years. And the average first-year student who qualifies for those grants and scholarships receives almost $9,000 a year and ends up paying something like $800 or so out of pocket. Um, So we really do as much as we can to not just build the curricular pathways into the university, but make sure that students are able to afford Well, what are you doing to prepare students for today's workforce? That is probably one of my biggest projects right now. It's become a significant area of attention here at UTEP since the pandemic, uh, as it has at many institutions. Like a lot of institutions, we're starting to think more about upskilling, reskilling across the state, too. It was a state initiative that has been translated into some really productive conversations across the UT system schools. Um, so we were able to access federal funds through the Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board, as I mentioned, through UT System, as well as um, I'm doing some work with the Strata Education Network. Um, and we've been developing this infrastructure to create and offer existing micro-credentials to our students. 
So we started this project, we thought we would just figure out the best way to create micro-credentials ourselves. And then we realized how much work that really was an investment and not just developing the micro-credentials curriculum, but also figuring out what they should be, finding the people who had the expertise to develop them. So we started to, um, through again, UT system, we have a relationship with Coursera and we were able to offer their Grow with Google portfolio to our students in the UT system. Um, and some we we had different ways of trying to experiment with this. Some faculty, we offered a stipend to um, figure out how to use a micro-credential inside of their own curriculum. So we had, for example, a computer um, intro to computer science, computer data science um, course. The professor took apart lots of different pieces of the data analytics um, certificate and embedded them in the course. And while there was some benefit of doing such, it was so much work for that faculty member to do that. And it might not have always been as integrated as, as if he developed that material himself. Um, we also had, I think, a theater class do a project management certificate, which is great, right? Because a lot of theater work is a kind of project management. So they supplemented their curriculum with that. Um, we had a geoscience course that also integrated data analytics. So all these different ways of kind of experimenting inside of a course. Um, but then we also said to our online students, hey, this catalog of Grow with Google certificates is available to you. Take them if you want to. Because again, they're a different kind of student population. They're motivated in different ways. And so we had a good number of students um, start that process. There was a lot more interest in doing it than there were who finished because they're pretty large and onerous as they should be, like they're, they're um, industry certified credentials. Um, so we tried these different experiments and now we have uh, an additional agreement with Coursera to um, access what they call their Career Academy portfolio, which has something like 30-ish um, certificates, micro-credentials available and it's available for students, for staff, for faculty, for alumni. So it's kind of an unlimited um, subscription to this portfolio. So we're again, encouraging faculty to consider how they might offer these either through integration into their course, if it makes sense, or just to say, hey, you're in this major, this certificate would be really valuable to you. Why don't you go ahead and, and see about um, participating in it? And so we're in the process now with a group of, of a couple of people from the provost office, several associate deans and the academic colleges, and thinking about how we want to, as a campus, define what a micro-credential is, define what a certificate is, define what a credential, a badge, what kind of system do we want to create. It's not just long-term going to be about us offering this industry-certified credential. It's also going to be about us developing some on our own where we have that expertise and ability to do so. How do we define um, what what becomes certified to be that you know UTEP sanctioned sort of badge? Um, who do we need policies? Do we need guidelines? What sort of structure do we need? And that's what I when I referred to earlier about this curriculum to career ecosystem. How does all of this fit inside of the work that we're already doing in other ways on campus? So I think we're we're making some progress, but of course, it's one of those things that the more you realize you could do, the more you realize you have to do, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. There's a lot of, yeah. yeah. You know, if you just go back a few words, badges, micro-credentials, they didn't, people never said that. And, yeah. and today, colleges and universities are paying attention. They're making actual lifelong learners out of their students. They come back right. all the time. It is the neatest right. thing. It, I just right. love what you're doing right. there. 
Thank you. And and at first, too, we thought in the early stages, because I also get to work with our professional and public programs, which is our continuing and professional education, that a lot of the work would come out of there. And some of it still will. But I think we didn't see it as fully integrated into the four credit student experience as we're seeing it now. So that's one nice evolution is is not seeing it as something that you do after you graduate or even if you're just not enrolled in school at the moment, right? But it's something you everybody can be doing all the time. Yeah, yeah, me. Yeah. Well, can you share some success stories of alumni who've made a significant impact in their respected fields? Sure. So I'm actually going to take a little bit of a liberty with this question, if that's okay with you. Sure. And suggest that while UTEP's notable alumni does, in fact, include astronauts, Academy Award winners, news anchors, professional athletes, politicians, like many schools do, I want to highlight um, those students who I think persevered, graduated, made their mark, and no one perhaps like will know their name outside of their own individual community. But since I get to work with the online programs and really get to think about the adult learner and the people who come back to campus after campus online or face-to-face, but get to come back um, after having been out for some time, those are the people I'd like to highlight because we do as best as we can. And it's for marketing, but it's also really to show prospective students who are thinking about coming back to the university what's possible, what other colleagues of um, students who are coming through through our programs have already done. So we have a mom who finally went back to school while working in the pharmaceutical research field with an associate's degree. She got her degree at the same time that her son finished high school and sent us pictures of them both standing in their cap and gowns, very proud of, of the diplomas that they received. We have a Homeland Security officer who finished his degree this last spring, and he was identified as the college banner bearer for the College of Liberal Arts. And for me, that was a huge moment to have an online student who'd never come to campus but had such great accomplishments be recognized as a banner bearer. And in fact, our our university leadership didn't even realize he was an online student until I pointed it out to them. And I loved that. Um, but he he wanted to get his his degree so he could obviously move up the ranks in in that area. But he was, has a young daughter and he wanted his to be a model for her. Um, this is one of my favorite stories too. We have a priest who graduated from high school in 1959, and he wanted the satisfaction of being able to come to the university and finish his degree at this point in his life. And he did it online, no less. So people who say, "Oh, I can't do things online," I think you know. When, when the mindset is right, it's possible. And there's 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 many, many more examples of these. And so, like I said, these are the notable alumni to me, the ones who realized perhaps later the value of an education, took the risk to come back, persevere, continue to make an impact in their community, their families, and their work. Yeah, I think it's a great idea to put a spotlight on them. Yeah. Um, can you highlight any unique or innovative programs or approaches that distinguish your college from other higher ed institutions? I can, and I'm glad you asked this question. Um, I'm always excited to talk about what we call the UTEP Edge. Um, So the UTEP Edge was born out of our quality enhancement program for our accreditation, more or less about a decade ago. Um, And the Edge is a way for us to frame and showcase our students' talents. And so a lot of times for those of us familiar with accreditation and the QEP, the quality enhancement programs, they become this this thing that we're kind of sort of already doing and we have to figure out how to make it work and then you have to write a report about it. But the brilliant group who came up with this idea of, of this particular project 
Um, it's become part of just who we are as a culture at UTEP. And it, and the reality is that what already was, we just didn't have a thing to call it. And now we have this kind of brand. And so the tagline for the edge is talented students, enriching experience and lifelong success. So it really starts from an asset, asset based approach that our students enter the campus, enter UTEP already possessing many talents and strengths. And then while they're at UTEP, students develop those talents and strengths through high impact practices or what we call the edge experiences. Um, so, you know, on our website, we say things like it's this competitive edge that distinguishes UTEP students from their peers at other institutions and prepares our graduates for leadership and lifelong success. And I think this is important because, again, going back to who we are as a campus, an urban public and open access, so many of our students as first generation college going students. Um, Things like civic engagement, study abroad, student employment, on-campus student employment are important to them because they're not here on campus. They're not living here in a residential situation for the most part. They're working. They're going back and spending time with their families. So we want to make sure that while we're he they're here with us on campus, we create these experiences for them that give them um, the opportunity to, to showcase what they already know and then to develop those um, the confidence, the professional, personal skills, and so on. And then in addition to the advantages, those high impact practices, we also have what we call the edge experiences. Um, and those include things like teamwork, communication, critical thinking, entrepreneurship, global awareness, and so on. And we encourage faculty to identify these advantages inside of their course, the curriculum they're teaching. One place that we've been particularly successful at doing this is in online courses because I get to work um, with the instructional design team, we spent a lot of time um, brainstorming on how we could help faculty, critical thinking, of course, every faculty member says, of course, I teach critical thinking. Uh, teamwork, okay, so a lot of students do group work, but we don't necessarily think of that as a skill set um, that we can call out and have students articulate what they learn through that process. And so in the online courses, we developed icons for them. We developed some language. We have our instructional designers walk through the syllabus and learning objectives and assignments with the faculty and say, oh, so what you're describing here is helping students to develop a global awareness mindset. How can we like call that out as something that they're learning in addition to the content that you're teaching them? And so there's still so much more work that we can do to, to promote this. But really one of the big ideas too is it's not we're just providing students with these experiences and teaching them these things, but helping them to be able to articulate them in an interview and as they apply for graduate school, whatever it is that comes for them next or while they're enrolled in school to provide that UTEP edge to them. Hmm. Well, in what ways does your college collaborate with local businesses to create mutually beneficial relationships to address regional challenges? So I think this is something we're learning to do better. I think like on a lot of campuses, um, it's happening. We do it. We don't do it in a kind of formal or centralized or sometimes even strategic way. As Dr. Wilson, our president said, sometimes trying to work with a university is like trying to shake hands with an octopus. And I love that because you don't know where to grab and it's moving and it's wiggling around and different groups are trying to accomplish different things. So we are working on establishing a more centralized business engagement center, thinking about how different units on campus can engage with that center. My group will, um, as someone who provides online education, 
um, especially at the graduate level where we might have business who want to send their employees to to get a degree, um, perhaps online. Um, through my professional and public programs, we do a lot of work in the community with credit unions, with utilities, different kinds of community services to provide educational non-credit opportunities. Um, but we're really, I think we're, we're at a point now where we're understanding a more systematic way to approach those relationships and thinking about how can you work with our current students? How can we provide education for your current employees? What sort of research opportunities are available if we create a collaboration together? Um, so that's something we'll continue to work through again as we go back to this curriculum to career ecosystem. How, how can we fold those conversations um, and those relationships with the regional uh, businesses and entities more productively into the ways that we think about what our students need and what the community needs when our students graduate. How is your mm -hmm. college preparing students for jobs that may not even exist yet? Mm -hmm. we've, we've touched on AI already a little bit more from the classroom sort of policy perspective. And I think we've all heard the saying that AI won't take your job, but someone who knows how to use it effectively may. Um, and I say that, you know, in response to this question, because I don't think that most of us, maybe any of us, fully yet understand how it, how we're already using it. I did a workshop this summer, and that was one of the first things we did was ask the audience, how are you already using AI? And some of them realized they've been using AI of different kinds for a decade, right? We just didn't call it that. It wasn't maybe quite as disruptive. It may have been more subtle. So thinking about what are the ways that we're already benefiting from different kinds of um, AI tools, and then really, it's it's not so much that you can teach students specific things because those specific things in quotation marks, right, are always changing and evolving. So it's more teaching them a mindset, right, a mindset to think critically about it, to be open to it, to be um, adaptive, I think is probably one of the best words to use there. And so I think different uh, areas of the institution are, are doing it really effectively and some are still sort of in the no we're not talking about this we're not doing it <laughs> we don't want to depend on it in any sort of way so again i think going back to that inspire teaching and learning center i think a lot of the conversations that they'll have i think a lot of the conversations the instructional designer designers who i work with have with faculty who are developing online classes will continue to be important um, but a lot of it is really getting faculty you know, to the point where this this becomes a part of the discussion in their course, whether it's a history course or a systems engineering course or a nursing course, AI is going to affect just about every, it is already, right? Um, just about every profession that there is out there. Yeah, I I I, uh, I think you guys have, and, and almost all colleges and universities have a heck mm -hmm. of a task ahead of them because things are mm -hmm. changing so fast right now, but mm -hmm. it looks like you're hitting it right on the ahead with what they really need to bring to the new job market. Thank you. And I'll say too, that when I did this presentation, my, my co-presenter and I finished our slides and we said, you know, we should do, we should ask chat GPT, the overall question of our presentation and see what it comes up with. And I mean, we think we're pretty smart and well experienced in this area, but I, let's say out of 10 points, it gave us the nine that we already had. And then there was the 10th, we were like, oh, we should add that. <laughs> So it can be useful. Yeah. Yes, I agree. It can be useful. Mm -hmm. um, how is your college incorporating community service and civic engagement into the educational process and encouraging students to be active mm -hmm. and responsive citizens? Mm 
Mm -hmm. So again, we have some areas on campus that do such an amazing job of this work. We elevate its importance to faculty fellows uh, who work in the provost office. We have a long history of community service and civic engagement. Um, but what makes it, I think, somewhat unique on our campus, it's not singular, but unique, is that there's very minimal town-gown divide here because many of our students are local students who, as I've already mentioned, um, come to campus you know, during the day to take their classes and then go back to their, their homes or where they work in El Paso. Um, but I think one area to highlight is... Um, we have what's called a CEL designation, CEL, Community Engagement and Leadership, inside of the College of Liberal, Liberal Arts specifically. Um, but this is a set of criteria that a course might meet, such as the number of community engaged hours, maybe a project that will be a deliverable to a nonprofit or some community group. Um, they host workshops and different training sessions with how to write a syllabus, what are some best practices to have students participate in community engagement make it a meaningful experience, reflective pieces, and so on. And a meaningful experience, not just for the students or not just for the community entity, right, but for both together. Um, and then the cell designation appears on the course registration catalog, as well as the students' transcripts, which is really nice. So they have that designation on their transcript when they, when they finish school. And so, um, I mean, UTEP is very committed to community service and to improving the El Paso region. And that's, I think that's one good example of how we do that. Good. Well, here's my last question. What advice would you give to prospective students and their families when choosing the right college or university for their education and future goals? I think, David, that is a deceptively simple question. It looks like it's <laughs> going to be simple on the surface, but surface, but as I started thinking about it, it's really a complex one. Um, I, I think there are certain things to think about at the outset, right? Like, what are the students' goals? Um, are there certain kinds of colleges where um, those goals might be seem more achievable? Maybe it's because they want to do a certain kind of major, have a certain kind of career. Is that even available at the institutions that they're interested in? How far from home are they willing or wanting to travel? Maybe they don't want to travel from home at all. Maybe they want to stay where they are. How big of a campus would they feel comfortable in? What are the associated costs? Like, you know, and the more I started thinking about this question, I had a long, long, long list of criteria to think about. And I actually have two college age boys. Um, one is a senior and one is a freshman, a first year student. And they each made their own choices about what schools they wanted to attend. And neither of the schools they ended up at were the ones they thought they were going to go to. They both had this vision of where they were going to go, visited these campuses and it was like, no, that's not where I want to be at all. And then ended up picking two different campuses that neither of them had ever visited. So I don't feel like I could say like, here is like the right way to pick a school because I think each each kid, each adult, each person who um, is looking to, to enter an institution of higher education is going to have their own criteria for, for, um, for what draws them to that institution. And I have to say too, that I was amazed at how confused I was at the process. And I work, I've been working in institutions of higher learning for since the mid 90s. Um, and as a parent helping a student go through this process, I, I was confused at multiple points. Um, so I, that made me think too about how we can make sure that we're doing the best we can to provide clarity to entering students. And then I wanted to emphasize, as you might guess, based on things that I've said earlier already in our conversation, and it's not just about deciding on that first school, because sometimes that first school won't be the school where you finish, right? 
So keeping that door open, that mindset open, that sometimes you'll need to stop out for a variety of reasons and you need to find whatever school will be there for your future. Um, so that's where I think we need to make sure that we consider the experience of all prospective students, not just those ones who we typically recruit coming out of high school. Excellent points. Excellent points. Well, Beth, thanks so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. I did too, David. Thank you. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Academic Dean is sponsored by Myers-McRae Executive Search and Consulting. Thanks again for tuning in. Until next time.